Okay, so this morning, I'm just going to keep us going through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 8, and this morning, we're going to do three verses. So verses 16 through 18, just three verses, we're going to look at one saying of Jesus. This is one Jesus saying that we're going to meditate on this morning. And so remember what Jesus has been doing, how his ministry has been going. Jesus has been walking around from town to town in Galilee, and when he gets to a town, he gets up to the gate of the town, and Luke says he announces what? He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. That is what Jesus announces when he gets to a town. And then Jesus accompanies that announcement with miracles. Miracles which demonstrate what the kingdom is like. When the kingdom comes to town, dead people come back to life and demons are pushed back and families are restored. So Jesus announces the kingdom, then does miracles to demonstrate what the kingdom is like. And then Jesus teaches and he gives little parables and sayings to teach what it is like when the kingdom of God comes to town. And this is one of the sayings that Jesus would always include when talking about what the kingdom of God is like. We know this is one of Jesus's kind of staple statements statements about what the kingdom is like because it's actually a doublet in the gospel of Luke, which means he says this twice in two different places in kind of different wording. And he says it twice in the gospel of Matthew and once in the gospel of Mark in kind of different wording all around the place. So, so wherever Jesus goes, he says, the kingdom of God is here. I've brought the kingdom of God. And then he teaches about it. And this is one of the sayings that we're about to read, which always accompany that announcement. Okay, so what we're going to do this morning is just meditate on this one kind of special, often repeated saying of Jesus. And I, before we get to it, I want to say a word about what I mean by meditate. Meditate in the Jewish Hebrew scriptural sense means to have the fullness of who you are, your mind and your heart and your body, sitting over the thing you are thinking about. There's a very American Protestant part of us that thinks if we're learning facts, we must be growing. If, if, I'm lear- if my knowledge base is increasing, that's how I'm growing. If I learn facts about the Bible, I'm growing. And so if I read this verse and I like look up all the words in the dictionary and I look up background information and I look up what other theologians have said and I get all of that knowledge, I must be growing. I want to remind us quickly that our job is not to learn more facts about the Bible, but to meditate on Jesus and, and meditate on his word. Um, this is interesting. The, the, word, the Hebrew word for meditate is Hagah, and I'm now a Hebrew scholar, no Hebrew expert. I had Hebrew expert friends over yesterday. They're not here, and I'm not them. But one of the Hebrew words I understand is Hagah, which is translate meditate. Everyone can say Hagah. Now you know, now you know a Hebrew word, and you don't even have to clear your throat for that one. Like Hagah, you can just say it, Hagah. So, so that's the word translated meditate, and that word actually shows up uh, in a really kind of like lurid, vivid poem in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah writes this poem about this lion who tracks down this lamb and he, and the lion like devours the lamb and there's blood and fluff everywhere. And, and Isaiah says the lion hagaz over the lamb. The fullness of the lion is totally dedicated and, and steeping in and sitting over this lamb, taking it into himself. That's, that's the word that gets translated meditate. That's what it means to meditate on the words of Jesus. To have the fullness of yourself over it, taking it into yourself and changing you. Not just increasing the amount of facts you know about something. And I can tell you, as like your preacher, I have meditated, I have hagad, like a lion over a carcass, for seven days on, on these three verses and sat over it and taken it into myself and it has changed me. Not just the amount of things I know, but I am more afraid of sin Today, I see sin as more deadly right now than I did a week ago, and I am more awed by the loveliness of the kingdom right now than I was 
a week ago. Because sitting on and meditating on Jesus doesn't just change your head, it changes actually your imagination and what you're afraid of and what you hope in and what you find lovely. So what I want us to do this morning is all of us collectively to haggah over this saying of Jesus that he would repeat in town after town. And I want us to walk away with, yes, more facts in our head, but really with a deeper fear of what sin is. Sin is more deadly than you think it is right now and a bigger um, awe for the loveliness of the kingdom. The the kingdom is more lovely than what you think it is right now. So my point is I'm going after your imaginations, not just your head. Is everyone with me? We're going to haggah like lions over a carcass. It's a very vivid imagery. Now, here's how we're going to do it. Here's our plan. I'm going to read the verses. I'm going to read our one saying of Jesus. Then I'm going to move into a summary of it, just so we're all on the same page. I think we can summarize this saying in a kind of nice, neat theological package. Then I want to move from the summary to see how it gives us a more deadly picture of sin and a more lovely picture of the kingdom. So read the verses, get a summary, move from the summary to a moving picture of sin and a moving picture of the kingdom. Okay? Everyone's on the bus? Everyone all here? I need answers or I'm going to say this forever. Thank you. (laughs) We can clap and respond to the preacher. Pastor Brian will be very shocked if we do both of that next week. Okay, this is the words of Jesus. He goes into a town and this is what he says after preaching. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. This is the word of God for the people of God. So that's Jesus, clear as ever, right? And just obviously straightforward as ever? No, Jesus is, he speaks in like enigmatic, puzzling ways. And we looked at that last week, why Jesus speaks in these puzzling ways. He's purposefully speaking in this opaque way about lamps and covering it and who has what, little of what. And he's wanting to draw you into his words so that when you steep in his words, you find something beautiful in there. He's purposefully speaking in this enigmatic way to draw you into what he's saying. And and so now I want to go in and see if we can kind of summarize what he's getting at with this saying. I think the first thing to do is to realize that Jesus is here riffing off of and building off of a general biblical truth that's all throughout the Jewish scriptures. So if you read the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, there is a general theological truth that even a cursory reading you'll see. And Jesus is taking that truth and riffing off of it. And here's the idea throughout the Jewish scriptures that Jesus is working on. Jesus is saying this, when God's light confronts a person, It reveals who they truly are. They will either be submissive to that light and walk further into God's kingdom or their sin will solidify, harden, and they will grow in rebellion against God's kingdom. That is a general theological theme throughout the entire Old Testament that I think Jesus is building his statement on. And I could point to a a number of examples of this. Maybe we can bring them up in connection time. But just as cursory examples, think, for example, of the character sketches of Saul versus David. God reveals himself in prophets and visions and encounters to both Saul and David. To Saul, every encounter actually drives him further into insanity. Saul becomes more myopic and narcissistic and insane until he commits suicide alone. 
But as God continues to reveal himself to David, David is not a perfect man, but David moves further into his walk with God until David actually writes some of the most moving poetry that has ever been written. We still today, 3,000 years later, read his poems about what it's like to know God and are moved by them. So the same light encounters these two men. It drives one to suicide and the other to poetic brilliance. The same example could be said of the generation of Moses or the generation of Josiah. An entire generation is moved into rebellion and insanity and another entire generation is moved into knowing God more deeply as he reveals himself to both of them. So this is a general biblical truth but then I think Jesus takes this into himself and is completing it saying he is the fullness of this idea. So this is my summary of Jesus' iteration of this theological concept. Jesus says, I am the fullness of the kingdom of God. What it looks like when the kingdom of God comes to town is me. I am God taking the world back for God. The true light, capital T, capital L. When people confront me, I will reveal the fullness of their heart and drive them into utter rebellion or utter intimacy. When people meet God in the Old Testament, that act of confrontation moves them away or closer to God. Jesus says, I am the fullness of the revelation of God. Everything before me is revealed. Nothing is hidden. Like a lamp on a stand, I see everything. And if those who meet me have little, I will give more to them. If they have any type of submission to, the, to God and any willingness to walk in his spirit, I will give more to them. But if those who meet me have none, even what they think they have will be taken away. They will lose everything. And so this idea of Jesus taking a theological theme into himself and fulfilling it, that's actually something Jesus does a lot throughout the Gospel of Luke, right? Jesus points to the whole temple, this whole theme of the temple throughout the Jewish scriptures, and then he says, I'm the temple. Or the theme of sacrifice throughout the entire Jewish scriptures, and then he says, I'm the sacrifice. Or the theme of incarnation, God coming to dwell with his people throughout all of the Jewish scriptures, and then Jesus says, I'm God incarnate. And that's what I think is going on here. There's a theme of God meeting people and driving them away. And Jesus says, I am the fullest revelation of that light. When people confront me, I will drive them to the highest heights of heaven or the deepest pits of hell. But there's no in-between when you meet Jesus. I think that's what he's getting at in this very intense statement that he includes in all of his sermons. Okay? So, so that's my summary of, of what he's saying here theologically. I think I've made the point, um, but I'm going to beat the dead horse. So I have an illustration for you. Here's a funny illustration. So I went, to, uh, I went to college and I had these like six friends. And in junior year, all six of my friends, they moved out and they got uh, one apartment together. And you can imagine a small apartment with six college boys, the dishes and the pizza boxes and the controllers and the smells. So you can put yourself in this small apartment with six college boys who are my friends. And uh, three of my friends in this apartment, they care about exercise and they take care of themselves and they eat healthfully and you know, they take care of grooming. And then my other three friends uh, don't. They don't exercise or care about how they eat or whatever. And I didn't ask them if I could use this illustration, but if they listen, you know who you are. And so my six friends, they move into this apartment. They have these dispositions in their heart. Then what happens is a gym moved in next door, like a big mega, one of the biggest gyms in Chicago, uh, bought the building next door. I think their apartment actually like touches this gym and it's open 24 seven and it gives discounts to college age students. So when the kingdom of fitness moves in next door, 
my three friends who already cared about fitness and taking care of themselves and eating healthily are driven further into the light of the kingdom. And now they like work out all the time and they have fitness trainers and they like measure how much chicken they eat. And my, my other three friends have been driven further into the darkness and are really good at coming up with excuses about why, like their knee hurts or I have to get up early for my shift or, and they're really good at, at not going to the gym. So the point is the same light, the same event confronts all of them in the same apartment, but it drives three of them further into what they already cared about and it drives the other three further away from what they already didn't care about. That's very, very clear, awesome example of what Jesus is saying here. Um, I think this idea is also just like existentially true. We know this just by experience, right? If I am walking in the spirit and, and I'm producing fruit and I want to be a humble member of Jesus's kingdom and, I, and I'm with him and then I am just like in the same room as another Christian who I look up to, who's really submissive and full of the fruit of the spirit, even if we don't talk, even if we don't talk about anything spiritual, just like being around them is encouraging. Their, just their presence encourages me and spurs me to continue walking. But if I have like a grudge and I know I'm right and I'm like angry and I like that I'm right and I like that I'm angry, I'm like nursing my grudge because it feels so good to be right. And I know I'm not walking in the spirit, but I like my rightness. And then I walk into the room as this same stupid Christian who's like, producing fruit and walking with Jesus, just their existence agitates me. Just them like being there. We don't have to talk. We don't have to talk about my sin or whatever. Their existence agitates the anger I already have because their light drives me further into wanting to produce fruit or their light drives me further into nursing my grudge. So I think we've all experienced something like that. Maybe not like Saul and David, but this is just existentially true. So, so I think that's my summary of, of what Jesus is trying to say in his oft-repeated statement. Okay, so now we could end right now, but we're not gonna, so I, we're not gonna do that. Instead, um, rather than just summarizing the truth and getting a truth in our brain, I, I want us to sit on this and be actually afraid and scared of what it means to hold sin in your heart in the presence of Jesus. To hold sin in your heart when you confront Jesus, he is saying, will drive you into hell until you have nothing left. And I want us to hagah over that truth until it scares us. Then I will flip the coin and I want us to see the loveliness of the kingdom, that if you have any faith, more will be given to you. And that's not just a theological truth. That is supposed to spur you in to see the loveliness of the kingdom. So, so I want us to be scared of sin first, the deadliness of it, and then see the loveliness of the kingdom. Okay, so... The sin is more deadly than you know part. Now, I think the uh, best example of this idea, the sin is more deadly than you know part, is actually kind of a longish story about the tribes of Israel. So everyone buckle up for this, this exciting epic story. So this is a map of the tribes of Israel. And the tribes of Israel move into Israel around 1400 BC-ish. Scholars can debate. James probably has an opinion, whatever. The, year, the, the tribes move into Israel around the year 1400 BC, and this is a map of how they split up. The northern tribes are Dan, Benjamin, kind of, Reuben, and everything north. And the southern tribes are Judah, Simeon, and some Levites. And when the northern tribes move in to this land, there's a bunch of Canaanites already living there, and in Canaanite religion, there, there are some practices endemic to what it means to be a Canaanite. There's child sacrifice, where you burn children to your gods, and there's cultic prostitution, and there's cultic slavery. 
And that's part of what it means to participate in Canaanite religion. And God says to the northern tribes, when you move in, you need to scatter Canaanite religion completely. You need to get it completely out of the land. And if that ethical imperative feels weird for you, then we can talk about that in connection time. But maybe like from God's perspective, it makes sense. If my people are going to take over this land, you can't have any children sacrifice cultic prostitution or cultic slavery going on. You need to get it completely out. So the northern tribes move in and they like do a good job of getting most of it out. Most of Canaanite is gone, but there are still some high places and there are still some places where Canaanites practice Canaanite culture and religion and there's sacrifice and prostitution and slavery going on. And then over the next couple generations, as things grow and judges pop up, the, place, the few places where Canaanite religion is practiced begin to swell. And now there are uh, lots of places where children are sacrificed and there's prostitution and slavery. And then what happens is a number of the families intermarry. And now there's a lot of Jewish families that half worship Yahweh and half sacrifice their children. Only every other, I don't know. And um, it, actually, by the end of Judges, one of the tragic examples is that Moses' family himself, so this is long after Moses, but Moses' family is now one of these mixed families that half worships Yahweh and half worships the leftover Canaanites. And then what happens as more generations go on and Canaanites swell is the northern tribes split away from the southern and the northern tribes become their own nation. So this is one nation and this is one nation. And the northern tribes get a king and then his son. So the first king of the northern tribes is Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is from a family that's, okay, split between Yahweh and the Canaanite religion. So now he, like, institutionalizes cultic children's sacrifice and prostitution and slavery. And it's okay. And the, and the poor people are being driven into the ground, and there's more bloodthirst and more bloodlust under Jeroboam. And it's part of the actual, like, fabric of the government now. And then he only reigns for 22 years, but he dies, and his son Nadab takes over. But then Nadab only reigns for two years because there's a coup. And Nadab is slaughtered by Basha. And that's maybe a steelhead of Basha. It's hard to tell, but that's kind of what he looks like, maybe. And so Basha starts a coup, and Basha kills everyone related to Jeroboam. Women, children, grandmas, aunts, uncles, slaughters all of them, slits all of their throats. And now Basha takes over, and he's in charge of the northern tribes, and he's also from a mixed family, and Canaanite religion begins to swell and grow. And he reigns for 21 years, but then he dies, and his son Elah takes over. And Elah only reigns for one year because then there's another coup. And now Zimri takes over. And Zimri slaughters everyone related to Basha. And Zimri gets all of the houses to war and rebel. And now the northern kingdom is really just chaotic. And all of the houses are at war with one another. Zimri kind of like wins the Game of Thrones and he sits on the throne. But he only reigns for seven days because remember what happened to Zimri on the seventh day. Zimri realized that all of these kings who are, who are rabbling and rousing and, and there's all these houses fighting, he realizes some of these kingdoms are like bigger than him and they're going to come in and get him. So Zimri on his seventh day locks himself in the palace and just burns it down and burns it to the ground with himself inside and his family and all of his servants and everything that's valuable and the gold just to be chaotic and destructive because if they are going to sit on the, if I can't sit on the throne, no one can. And he just burns the city and the palace to the ground for the sake of being irrationally destructive. And here's a painting of, of people fighting and, and there's uh, different tribes warring and slaves running away and the city on fire and the palace burning to the ground. And so this big epic story of the tribes of the north is that 500 years ago there was a few Canaanites who they didn't deal with. 
And there was a few places where Canaanite religion was allowed to practice. And then it grew and it swelled and it took over the government until it leads to a king just burning the place down, taking everything of value with him for the sake of being irrationally destructive. On the seventh day. And the fact that it happens on the seventh day isn't, um, isn't coincidental. Remember, God, he reigns for seven days on the first page of the Bible. And on the seventh day of God's reign, the world is now primed to produce life. And he says it is very good. And now God and humanity are, are ready to go and the whole situation is teeming with life. And God and man on the seventh day are ready to go out and produce a creative, productive, flourishing planet. And Zimri is purposefully set up as the anti-creation. Where on the seventh day of his reign, he says it is very bad and, and takes everything into hell for the sake of being irrational. And so here's my summary of the sin is more deadly than you know part. If when confronted with the light of Jesus' kingdom, you hold on to rebellion in any part of your heart, even if you believe correct things in your head, if there is rebellion in your heart, that rebellion will grow and swell and take you over and there will be no bottom to the irrational, destructive hell you create for yourself. The Canaanites in your heart will grow and swell when confronted with Jesus and they will take you over and like Zimri, you will burn everything to the ground. In Jesus' words, even what little you do have will be taken from you. Everything will be taken from you. When we read the story of the northern tribes, we aren't supposed to say, wow, they were bad. They messed up. We're supposed to say, that's us. When we hold on to Canaanites in our heart and we're confronted with Jesus, it will grow and swell and in a very real sense, drag us to hell. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis because he's, he makes this point more poetically than anyone else. He says, every time you make a choice, you are turning a little part of you, the central part of you that makes choices into something a little different than it was before. And throughout the innumerable choices in your life, you are turning yourself into a hellish creature or a heavenly one either into a creature that is in tune with God and others and yourself or into a creature that is in a state of war with God and others and yourself. To be the one is heaven. That is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other is hell. It means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. We at each moment are progressing towards one reality or the other. We at each moment are allowing Canaanites in ourselves, in the face of Jesus' light to grow and it will drag us into hell in a real sense or we at each moment are in the light of Jesus destroying Canaanites and becoming more heavenly creatures. But there is no in-between when you meet Jesus. You are being driven to the pits of hell like Zimri or the heights of heaven. Now, at this point, I could just switch to the happy side of the coin, but I feel like to be pastorally helpful, I have to say a few more words so that the message isn't just fight it off. So here are a few words of maybe pastoral help to uh, comfort these like trying hard words of Jesus. One idea is that you should take time to um, sit down and self-diagnose. And this is a good list to self-diagnose with. This is a list of the seven deadly sins. And this list was created by theologians and spiritual leaders throughout the years because they looked at all the vices in the New Testament and, and lined up the vices and said, what are those vices that start as nothing other than a disposition of your own heart? Not the sins that are obviously seen on the surface, like adultery or corporate embezzlement or something. Sins that you can see if they happen. 
What are the sins in the New Testament that exist in your heart and no one knows they're there but you? And, th- and this is the list that's produced. And it can be longer or shorter, but it's important to sit down. Is gluttony taking an exorbitant amount of pleasure in food or drink or just pleasure? A, a disposition of your soul that no one knows it's there but just you? Or lust or greed or sloth or wrath or envy or pride? And so taking time to sit down with a Bible open in the face of God and maybe even talking to other Christians who know you, diagnose, are these Canaanites in your heart? Because the scary truth is these are the Canaanites that grow and swell and take people to hell. And there are very sad examples. There are a lot of very sad public examples of Christians and pastors and theologians who we have seen just publicly these things like Zimri burn their life from the top bottom. For, For example, lust There are a number of examples of pastors who start by just thinking it's okay to undress people in my mind. And it's just a disposition of my heart that I can treat other humans who are made in the image of God like objects which exist for my pleasure. And it's just a thing you do in your heart. But then that Canaanite grows and it's okay to now watch online and in movies and turn all of these groups of people into objects which exist for my pleasure They're just things I can use for my gratification and then it grows and it swells and pretty soon it's okay to like actually abuse people in real life and it becomes public and Jesus says everything you have is taken from you because the Canaanite you didn't fight is now you are like Zimri burning yourself to the ground. And there's sadly a ton of public examples of that or I think wrath is another one. We've seen a lot of big public examples where it says it's okay to start in my heart just saying I'm angry at them and, and not just anger but just like un, unjustified anger towards the people who are wrong and you might even be right and they are wrong and they're doing bad things but it's, it's okay for me to hold on to my madness at them and then it grows and it swells and there are Christians and pastors and theologians who we have publicly seen say it's okay to berate people with words and, and question them and run them into the ground and mock them because wrath started as a Canaanite you didn't deal with and now it's okay to abuse a bunch of people with your words publicly. And so uh, pastoral advice is to not just say, not just stop doing bad things, but sit down and self-diagnose this list of dispositions of the heart with your Bible open and the face of God and maybe with other Christians who know you and ask, is this a part of me? Because it can grow and swell and like Zimri, you can burn yourself to the ground. Okay, Um, another piece of pastoral advice or a thing I want to say before moving to the happy side of the coin is I think there is a natural response to this type of message. There's like a natural thing that all humans want to say to this type of message and I know this is natural because I have said this and I have thought this myself and the natural response is something like this. Church people make a big deal of stuff that isn't a big deal. And, and the Bible and church people can really swell stuff out of existence. Right? Like the Zimri example is a little heavy-handed, Caleb. And like the author of Hebrews says, if you keep on sinning, you'll trample the blood of Jesus under your feet. It's a little passive aggressive there. Church people are good at making a big deal out of little stuff. Are you telling me my like little lust problem and my wrath and me like drinking a little too much is Zimri burning a palace to the ground? Christians know how to make mountains out of molehills. And I have said that. So if that's your natural reaction, I know, I get where you're coming from. But I think Jesus' response, Jesus's response is to say that that natural reaction is just like fundamentally deeply ignorant of how evil you can be. Not how evil that other person is out there and not how evil that other group is out there 
but you yourself can bring so much hell into creation. And you yourself can bring so much hell into the lives of the people around you. And you yourself can bring so much hell into your own internal life and you don't believe it and you just think it's a few passions and Jesus says that is deeply ignorant of how much hell you can create. And so I get the natural response, but Jesus would just say, you're much worse than you know. You can be much worse than you know. And we have to take him seriously at this point. Okay, a, a third pastoral advice before I flip to the bright side of the coin is I want to say a word about this book. This is a book called Lila by Marilyn Robinson. Um, Marilyn Robinson is a great theologian. I think she's like one of the best theologians in America right now. Everyone should read everything Marilyn Robinson writes. She writes fiction and theology. And one of her fiction books, Gilead, won the uh, Pulitzer Prize. So this is a fiction book called Lila. And Lila is about a girl named Lila. And in the book Lila, she's raised in a... Um, really broken home, the parents aren't around, when they are around, the dad is abusive and angry, and when the mom is around, she doesn't have time for Lila, and so Lila's raised in this sad situation. And then Lila runs away, and she finds a family that's like a churchy family, and she makes friends with the mom, and, and they take her to church. And so then Lila, at church, learns all the church stuff you're supposed to do. Like, she learns that when you take communion, you're supposed to take one cracker, not a handful. And she learns that when you pray, you're not allowed to say swear words. Even though like David kind of swears in his prayers, you have to use only gentle words when you pray out loud. And she learns all the words to the songs because like at church, all these people know all these songs, but she, they don't practice. How do they know all the words? So Lila like learns church stuff. And um, eventually, at some point, Lila is really fighting her Canaanites. And she is angry and she's bitter. And there's like complex emotions about how to deal with her family and, and how do you help people and forgive people but move on and not trust people. And she's really fighting her Canaanites. And at some point she says to this older woman in the book, almost verbatim, she says, I know I need to work through this, but the last people I would work through this with are the people I meet with on Sunday. I know I need to work through this, but the last people I would work through this with are the people I meet with on Sunday. And it's not written in a way where you think like, Lila is so ungrateful and she's biting the hand that feeds and she needs to be more honest. It's written in a way where you totally get it from her perspective. It's not that the church people are so stuck up and hypocritical. It's just that they have like all the right answers and they take sin very seriously. But her complexity and her messiness and all of the emotions, it's just not a thing they're going to help her deal with. And so I think a phrase here is very helpful. It's a phrase from Tim Keller. Tim Keller's phrase is tenacious compassion. Compassion that is so tenacious, you are willing to work with someone in their mess and in their grayness and in all the boxes that don't make sense and in all the complexities of half-fulfilled relationships to actually help them fight their Canaanites. Really tenacious compassion. And my point I want to say is, if we're a church that takes sin with dead seriousness, we really see that sin leads to Zimri burning a palace down, but we don't have tenacious compassion, we will be unbalanced and unhelpful to Lila. Treating sin with dead seriousness must be coupled with tenacious compassion. And likewise, if we have tenacious compassion and we're nice to help people, but we don't take sin with dead seriousness, we're also not helping Lila. And um, I actually want to say this as an encouragement. I think Valley Brook, now we are doing a great job of taking sin with dead seriousness and tenacious compassion. So this is an encouraging word to continue us on in this track. But to be Jesus followers means to do both. To really see that sin, even in the smallest parts of your heart, leads to Zimri. But you can't say, well, therefore we have to have all the rules and, and have all the boxes and there's no gray area. And at that, that point, Lila isn't helped at all. So taking sin with dead seriousness has to be coupled with tenacious compassion. Okay, so those are my 
pastoral thoughts to help us through this idea. Now we can finally flip to the happy side of the coin. Okay? Is that about time for that? <laughs> Here is the more lovely than you see part. Jesus says that if you see my light and you have sin in your heart, even what little you do have, all of it will be taken from you. But he also says, if you see my light and you have little, much more will be given to you. So I want to talk about the much more that will be given to you. And this is my summary of the much more side of things. If, when confronted with the light of Jesus' kingdom, you humbly submit to his rule and walk in his spirit, then there is no rebellion Jesus will not forgive, no hurt Jesus will not heal, and no Canaanite Jesus will not give you the power to overcome. No rebellion he will not forgive, no hurt he will not heal, and no Canaanite he will not help you overcome. In Jesus' words, to those who have, much more will be given. And I want to talk about those three things. When you come into Jesus' kingdom, you really are forgiven of all of the rebellion and all of the hell that you brought into the world. All of the hell that you were walking towards, Jesus went into it for you. The deepest part of hell that you, like Zimri, were headed towards is where Jesus went on your behalf. And if you are in his kingdom, there is no hell you created that he has not completely forgiven you for. And there's no back part of Jesus' head where he kind of remembers you messed up and he's still like kind of sad and he's still kind of disappointed in you. Jesus has really, totally, completely forgiven you of all of the rebellion and hell you created. He went to hell for you and there's no further part of the pit he didn't go on your behalf. You really are forgiven of all of it. And there are Christians who come into the kingdom, but we just, we really don't believe much more is given to us. We really kind of feel like Jesus is still not forgiven us in some part of his head. And I, you need to hear him say, much more is given to you. More than what you think has been given to you. You have been given complete forgiveness. But more than that, when you come into Jesus' kingdom, not only are you forgiven of all rebellion, but... There is no hurt Jesus will not heal. When you come into the kingdom, you begin a relationship with God where he now walks with you to actually be the balm and be the healing for all the parts of yourself that you hurt when you are walking towards hell. You have a lot of self-inflicted wounds and brokenness and complexities because of the path you were on. And now in Jesus' kingdom, not only are you forgiven, but he is now present with you and walks with you to heal and restore and redeem all of those parts. And you might hear other Christians talk about how they feel the Spirit's presence and they're led by the Spirit and they feel God comfort them, but you might think that's for other Christians. That's not, I don't experience that. And you need to hear Jesus say to you, much more will be given to you. Not only are you given complete forgiveness, but you are given a relationship where God now really does slowly walk with you to redeem and heal all of the parts that you messed up when you were walking towards hell. It's not just forgiveness, it's a redemptive relationship. And finally, not only does he forgive you and not only does he walk with you, but there is no Canaanite. Jesus will not give you the power to overcome. I think there are Christians who just say, I deal with bitterness. I'm just a bitter person. I just, I just deal with lust. It's just part of me. I just, I just deal with wrath. I'm just an angry person. And you need to hear Jesus say to you, much more will be given to you. You aren't only welcomed in and completely forgiven. You aren't only brought into a relationship where he heals you. But he then fills you with his spirit so that you really can live righteously. You don't have to push up the total depravity and we're wicked thing to the point where you don't believe you can live righteously. You really can live a righteous life and defeat the things in your life that will lead you to, like Zimri, burn the world down around you. This is how C.S. Lewis says it. Again, he is so poetic. C.S. Lewis says, We must never imagine that our own unaided efforts can be relied upon 
to carry us even through the next 24 hours as decent people. So the power to fight Canaanites is not your own bootstrapping ability. It's the spirit that comes into you. He's the one who makes you even decent. And if he does not support us, not one of us is safe from the grossest sin. But additionally, no degree of holiness or heroism attained by any of the greatest saints is beyond what he has determined to produce in every one of us. He will make us heroes. But the job may not be completed in this life, but he means to get us as far as possible before death. The Spirit really does mean to not just forgive you and not just heal you, but actually make you into a righteous hero of the faith. And you may not be perfect before you die, but he means to get you as far as possible before you die. When you come into the kingdom, much more is given to you. And some of us walk as if not very much has been given to us. Much more has been given to you. So I want to close by reminding us that when we come to Jesus' words, our job is not to learn the facts and believe correct theology. Our job is to haggah over his statements and take them into ourself and let him change us so that we are more afraid of the things he wants us to be afraid of and more in love with the things he wants us to love. And when we sit on this saying, we realize the absolute depths of our depravity and where we can be pushed if we hold on to rebellion and all of the things that the kingdom offers us. I'm going to end us in prayer. Jesus, thank you for not just paying for our sin, but bringing in the fullness of the kingdom of God, where you meet us in relationship, you redeem us and restore us, where you give us your spirit. And we pray that those of us who are in your kingdom and know you will really believe that to us much more has been given. And that when we walk in the sweetness and the loveliness of the fullness of your kingdom, we would be lights to those around us. We know that this knowledge only comes by the power of your spirit, so we ask your spirit to come and make this truth a reality, not just in our heads, but also in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.